All right, so this is Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of, God, of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So it's funny, Laura, thank you for the scripture reading and also the, uh, the response. Our backgrounds are quite different. I was not raised in any kind of church environment. And I also have a difficult time remembering anything right after I heard it. I usually have to write things down. I don't do well with memorizing uh, numbers. I have to, it's easier for some people to memorize verses than me. And, and I honestly, within five seconds of after she said, when we're done, and I say this, and you say this, I'm like, I have no idea what she said. So I was just kind of like, when you all repeated, I was like, just kind of faked it. So just pure confession. But uh, my name is Pastor Brooks. It's glad, glad that you're here. Thank you for choosing to worship uh, with us downtown. We're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and I've just absolutely loved uh, this series. I'm actually trying to think of a series I didn't love, but I really, really am enjoying this this series as we're looking back how Christ is superior, how, how the author keeps calling us to hold fast, to hold fast. And, and last week, Pastor Jason um, covered chapter 10, and he was talking about how, here's the deal, all of us are going to suffer. All of us are going to suffer. Sometimes we suffer because of our own stupid choices, our own sin. Sometimes we suffer because of injustice or sin committed against us. And sometimes we just suffer because because we live in a fallen world. And it's, it's, it's imperative that we have the kind of faith which endures. And so we ended with verse 39 here in chapter 10, if you recall from last week. Uh, the author says, but we're not of those who shrink back. We're not. We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we're of those who have faith, who have faith and preserve their souls. But do we, though? Are we? Are we? Is that the kind of faith that you have? Is that the kind of faith that I have? I hope so. But do we? Uh, a few weeks back, was it a wedding? A lot of you were at the same wedding. Saw someone I hadn't seen in a number of years. They used to attend Grace Community Church. Uh, very active in ministry. Um, and 
I hadn't seen him for a while and we're just standing there chatting and this particular individual, he asked me a question. He says, hey, can I ask you a strange question or random question is what he said. I said, sure. He says, do you ever struggle with your faith? I'm like, well, if by struggle do you mean are there times when I wonder is, is what I believe really true or is it just kind of, you know, kind of wish fulfillment? And, and yeah, there's times that I, I wonder, hey, is this real? But if you're asking, am, do, have I struggled in the sense that I'm, I feel like I'm losing a grasp on my face and I'm drift, drifting away uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to doubt seriously? No, no I, I, haven't, I, haven't got, I haven't been in that place yet. I said, why, why do you ask? Because I'm struggling. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a desert place and I don't know if I, if I believe. I want to believe, but I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my grip. I serve with people in ministry who at this point in time have rejected Christ. And it's shaken me. So it's so easy when things are good, when, when you're on top of, the, top of the peaks and life is great, it's so easy to say, I have the faith that will, that will preserve my soul. And then you get punched in the stomach or then you don't hear from God for months, sometimes years. And there's, there's this sense of, I don't know. I don't know. So what do you tell someone like that? What do you tell yourself? How about this? You just need to believe. That's sarcasm. But that is often what we hear other Christians tell one another. You just need to believe. What we need to do is understand what kind of faith is actually the author's talking about that actually perseveres. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the faith that endures as we enter into Hebrews chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters in the book of Hebrews. Tonight we're going to cover the nature of faith. That is, what, what is it? What is faith? What is the kind of faith which actually perseveres? And then the second thing we're going to look at is the object of that faith. The object of that faith. And then next week we're going to move into the practice of faith. What faith actually does. What it leads us to do. And then the reward of faith. Love to cover it all in, in one, one sermon. But it's important that we really focus in on uh, points one and two here. The nature and the object of faith. And then Jason will cover uh, the next portion next week here downtown. So please turn in your Bibles and... Let's pray. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts so that our faith becomes rooted and grounded in something that is not going to dry and shrivel up. Something which is unshakable as we learn to trust the author and perfecter of that faith, Jesus. Lord, we come to you and we are in desperate need of you. Even sometimes we don't even feel our need, but we are, Lord. We, we need you for every breath that we draw. We need you to enter into faith. We need you to hold us in our faith. Lord, we need you to be faithful because there are times when we are faithless. Father, help me to preach and teach in such a way that the word is clearly articulated and that it's understood and believed. 
Spirit, we need you to move in our hearts, to grow us, to stretch us, to deepen our faith in you, Lord, so that we would hold fast to the very end and bear fruit. Lord, we're asking that you do this for the sake of your name, for you to be glorified in this church and in this community and to the very ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first of all, the nature of faith. The nature of faith. We're going to take a look at Hebrews verses 11, chapter 11, verses 1, 2, and 3. Three things that we're going to take a look at. First of all, uh, what faith is. What faith is. Secondly, what it secures. What it secures for us. And, and three, where it begins. All three of these things are in the first three verses. So let's take a look. First of all, what is it? What is this faith that the author keeps talking about? It's in Hebrews chapter 11. So he says, now, faith is the assurance, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There is a lot in that sentence. There is a lot. Now, this is not a, uh, an Oxford or a Webster's Dictionary definition, but it suffices for the theological purpose, purpose that we are looking at it. So what is faith? When you read faith in the Bible, this is an excellent uh, way for us to understand it. Faith is, it is, well, first of all, faith means trust. It means trust. It means belief, trust. You are taking God at his word. That's what faith is. But let's, let's take a look at what else he says about it. It's the assurance. It's the assurance of things hoped for. That word assurance, it means a positive declaration intended to give confidence regarding a promise. So it, it gives us confidence. It's, it's the assurance. Assurance of what? Well, the promise are the things hoped for. Now, when we use the word hope as Americans... In the English language, it really waters down the word, and it's not typically the way we think of it. So when we use the word hope, we often mean wish. Um, I hope my team does well this year. That's not based upon a promise. It's based upon a desire that you have absolutely no control over. You're just wishing for a positive outcome. That's not at all what the author of Hebrews means, or Paul means, or John means, or Peter means. When you read the word hope in the New Testament, it doesn't mean wish fulfillment. It means eager expectation of a promise coming to fulfillment. Now the faith is not in the promise, but the faith is in the person who gave the promise. So that's what faith is. Now let's go back to this just believe scenario. How many of you have heard that before? You, you're wrestling with something and someone said, well, you just need to believe. You just, you just need to believe. What, is, what do we mean when we say just? You, you just need to, ju just, what does just mean? Here's the danger in using that phrase. It runs very close to what skeptics refer to when they criticize Christians for having blind faith. So you just need to believe can mean you just need to get your reason and your intellect out of the way and just hold on. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says, first great commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength and with all of your 
mind. You cannot love something which you cannot rationally embrace. Faith is not blind. Faith is rational. Now, you cannot come to faith by reason alone, but faith is very reasonable. It is based upon rational thought. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Listen to how Luke introduces his gospel to a recipient, the original recipient, a man by the name of Theophilus. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, what does Luke do for Theophilus who is wrestling with faith? Let's look what he doesn't do. He doesn't send him a card that says, just believe. He sends him a 24-chapter dictation of all of the eyewitnesses' accounts of the person and work of Jesus. Luke is banking on the certainty and the assurance of the things hoped for because of the eyewitness testimony. This, this really is important because many of you are at a young age in your faith when you are, you're wrestling with hard things and you're going to wrestle with harder things. And if you are banking on the just believe method of holding on to your faith, there's a good chance you won't. When your marriage doesn't work out, or you lose a loved one to death, or you are in a deep, dark state of oppression for, for years maybe, and you can't shake yourself, if you are holding on to the just believe method of not falling away, you could very well fall away. It's not what the author's talking about in Hebrews. So, it's not blind faith. It's not blind. Let's go back to Hebrews. Take a look. What does it secure? Now, Jason is really going to get into this next week when he's talking about the reward of faith, but we do need to touch on it here because it's mentioned for by it, the people of old received their commendation. So he's speaking of those who came before Christ. They were commended by God, not because of what they did, but because of the fact that they trusted the promises of God, which, by the way, led them to do things. You'll see that next week as, as, as Jason unpacks the rest of Hebrews 11. But they were commended for their faith, and that's true of us now. They're commended by trusting in the promise of God. Paul says that we are justified by faith. What does that mean? Romans chapter 3, it means that you and I are declared righteous simultaneously and not guilty, not because of what we have done, but because that we have placed our trust in what Jesus has done. We are commended, therefore, for our faith. Again, that's going to be covered in great detail next week as you see the reward of faith. But where does it begin? Where does faith begin? Take a look at verse 3 here. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen 
was not made out of things that are visible. Now, we have the Word of God made more sure because of the revelation that has come through Jesus Christ, which we covered in chapter 1. But even if you did not have a Bible, even if you did not hear the words or the name of Jesus uttered from a missionary's lips, you would go outside, you would be able to hold a newborn baby, you would be able to behold the stars, and you would be able to hear the testimony of the living God that says, I am here. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, then verse 19, that God's invisible attributes are, are, are spoken of by that which has been created, namely his power, his power and his divine nature. You can just, the, test, the scriptures, are, or the, the, the universe is screaming, I am here. God is not silent. Even if you never hear the words of Jesus, you never hear the gospel, you know that there is a God. But yet, what, is, what does Paul say about that? He says, yet, men know the truth, but they suppress the truth because of wickedness. So, it begins with an understanding that we're here and we're not alone. Now, we're going to pause here from Hebrews because of where we're at as a culture. Where we're at as a culture. This is the point where there's many people who maybe you're one of them, uh, especially in an academic setting where you're surrounded by grad students and doctors and scientists and, and people with PhDs, that they'll get to verse 3 They'll get to verse 3 and say, you see, that's where you lose me. That's where, I, that's where I'm out. See, because science has demonstrated that faith, that kind of faith, that the universe was created by a God, science has made that notion implausible. How many of you have heard this? How many of you are grad students, or you were a grad student, and you felt that if you came out and said you believed that, that that would endanger your academic career. Any of you? It's super common. Super common. And so we need to, we need to understand, understand that this is not a threat if you're in the scientific community. It is, it is, not, is not a threat. Um, although there are those who would say that it is. Let's take a look at what Stephen Hawking um, brilliant astrophysicist, recently passed away just a few years ago. In his book, The Grand Design, written in 2010, he said, almost all of us sometimes wonder, why are we here? Where do we come from? Traditionally, these are questions for philosophers or philosophy, but philosophy's dead. He said, philosophers have not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. You see, there was a time, there was a time in Western civilization, Judeo-Christian cultures, that the authorities on the questions of why, why am I here, where did I come from, the authorities were people in robes, cleric robes, or philosophers. And what Hawking is saying is that those individuals are no longer relevant. Philosophy, theology, its cousin, they're dead. They're dead. Now, there's still people in robes, only they're not really robes, they're white lab coats. They're the new priests of the day. Here's what Hawking is saying. 
you need to shift your allegiance and listens to us, the bearers in his word, the bearers of the torch. We hold the torch. We shed the light. Philosophy, theology is dead. He also goes on to say in his book, The Grand Design, somewhere later, he says, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Just let me personally interject my own faith journey. When I came to Christ, I became a Christian in 1988. It's my third year here at the University of Iowa. And my field of study was science education. I was studying to become certified to teach at a secondary educational level, physics and chemistry. So I had to take a lot of physics and chemistry, right? But I also had to take a course load which was a little bit different than what a pure science major would have to take. I had to take classes which helped me understand the nature of science, how science works. And it was one of those classes in 1990 which helped ground me in my Christian faith and I am truly grateful. The, the professor at no time told me, you can trust the Bible because the Bible's true. What the professor did was make us read Hume, Francis Bacon, all of these various philosophers, and we would have to write out on index card, palms, points of major significance. And we would have to come argue the, the points of view from in, in, in class. And here's what I learned. Science is a human endeavor. It is the study of the universe. It's the study of how the universe works. And it is a very human endeavor. And all science approaches their discipline with an a priori assumption about how things work. Now that doesn't make it bad. Science is a wonderful endeavor. It is a gift from God because in figuring out how the universe works, when you pair science with its cousin technology, it leads to human flourishing. It's a good thing. And many of you know this. You are in the field of applied science, many of you, or pure science. But back to Hawking. Back to Hawking. If you understand what science is and how it works, you understand that both of the statements he made don't hold up to science. By the way, he's a brilliant man, was a brilliant man. Genius. Few like him in the last century. But let's take a look at, look at this. In, in, in a book called can Science Explain Everything by John Lennox, who is uh, Professor Emeritus at Oxford, mathematics, brilliant individual. Mathematics is the language of physics. He points out that this statement, let's just take a look at it. He said, philosophy is dead. Now, is that a statement of science? No. What is it a statement of? 
It's a philosophical statement. It's self-refuting. So in saying philosophy's dead, you need to listen to us, the scientist. He's making a philosophical statement that has nothing to do with empirical evidence, but has everything to do with how knowledge is derived and understood, which is a philosophical endeavor. He undercuts himself, but, but it gets worse. This statement, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself. Now let's analyze the sentence grammatically. Because there, what's the verb? Is. What, is that, what does that mean? That, that's a statement of existence. It's a statement of existence. What exists? What, what, what's the next phrase? A law like gravity. What is gravity? Gravity is the force between multiple particles. It's directly proportional to the mass of the particles and inversely squared proportional to the distance of the particles apart. Matter is something. The law of gravity is something. But keep reading. Because there is something, the universe can create itself from Nothing that is a logically incoherent statement. Why do I belabor this point? See, Brooks, this doesn't have anything to do with Hebrews. Take us back to the Scriptures. I'm getting there. But you are saturated in a culture that tells you you are fools, you are idiots, and science says that faith is irrelevant. Science says nothing about the whys. Only the how. Only the how. And I don't want you to be bullied into not having confidence in what you believe because people that are intelligent tell you you're not. Albert Einstein said it very, very well. Albert Einstein, equally as brilliant, Stephen Hawking, I don't think anybody would argue that. But here's what Albert Einstein said. Scientists make very poor philosophers. If Albert and Stephen Hawking were contemporaries, there's a good possibility that, that, that Einstein would have read that statement and said, Steve, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane because what you're saying makes no coherent sense. And it doesn't. It's not to diminish the work that he did in astrophysics and on black holes. But you have to understand, he's out of his lane when he's talking about philosophy and science. Forgive the departure from the Scripture, but it's important that you understand the culture you live in and that your faith is not threatened by science. There are thousands of scientists. There are some of you in this room who have deep abiding faith. You are not threatened by science, and nor should you be if you feel threatened. Okay, back to the Scriptures. Everybody has faith. In something. Everyone has faith in something. Let's take a look. In the beginning, God created man and woman in his image. And at that moment, Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with one another and perfect fellowship with God. What was the object of their faith? It's not a trick question. God. They trusted in the promises of God for a while. But in Genesis 3, the serpent is introduced. The serpent comes in and says, Did God really say that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Eve replies with, 
God says that we may eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said that we shall not even touch it, which is not true. And then the serpent replies with, God did not, you will not surely die. For God knows that on the day that you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be open and you will become like God. You will know the difference between good and evil. Sounds pretty good. At that moment, she began to doubt the goodness of God. She began to doubt the object of her faith. She is in a crisis of belief at that moment. She is no longer trusting. And what does she shift the locus of trust to? She shifts the locus of trust from God and His goodness and His promise to her own ability to determine what is right, what is wrong. What is good, what is evil. She and Stephen Hawking were on the same page. She began to believe that the locus of her faith was in her own ability to reason. That's not different than Stephen Hawking. Now, she didn't deny the existence of God, but the demons believe and shudder. We're not talking about intellectual assent. That's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he's talking about faith. He's talking about trust. So let's take a look at a, another well-known scientist. I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name. Richen Lowenton. This is also from John Lennox's book, Can Faith Explain Everything? Harvard geneticist. This is a profound quote, and I'm going to read it in its entirety. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity. Notice the, 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 the word patent. That's his word, not mine. The patent absurdity of some of its constructs. In spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for the unsubstantiated just-so stories, here it is, because we have a prior commitment to materialism. What does that mean? Materialism is a worldview that takes at faith that in the universe there is only material substance, mass and energy. There is nothing. It's a closed system. There's nothing outside of the universe. That's it. Because of a prior commitment to materialism. He's not finished. It is not true. It is not that methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world, but to the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and set of concepts that produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, the discipline of science theoretically should follow the following creed. Go where the evidence leads. This individual is saying, no. We cannot go where the evidence leads because that leads to an unpalatable conclusion that we have already concluded cannot be true. That is a philosophical commitment. 
which is just as powerful and just as deep as the Apostles' Creed. Everyone has faith. There are no exceptions. The only question is, where is that faith? What is the object of this faith? This is crucial. I mentioned that Eve bought into the lie that our locus of faith can be our own reason. We can turn it inward. She bought that wholeheartedly, but God didn't leave her or her husband to herself. He gave her the consequences. He said, this is the way it's going to be. Death is going to enter the world. You're going to be in pain through childbirth. Your husband, Adam, the ground is not going to yield forth its fruit. It's going to be difficult. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to bleed. You're going to sweat. There's going to be conflict. And there's going to be conflict between your seed, your generations, Eve, and the seed of the serpent. But one day, but one day, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And he points forward to a day when faith would be established and there would be one who would come through Eve that would defeat evil. And we see the faith that grows from her son, Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Both of these patriarchs shift the locus of trust from their own reasoning back to God. And they were commended for their faith. And the author of Hebrews says, without faith, trust, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is the object of your faith? I did, I'm not asking you if you assent to the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, that he was dead for three days, that he rose again, that he appeared to the apostles, that he ascended into heaven. I'm not asking you if you assent to that. I'm asking you, where is your faith? What is the object of faith? You see, Brooks, I'm confused because you're describing the Christian creed. Yes, I am. But that doesn't mean that you trust him. Do you trust him? Abel trusted him. Edict trusted him. You're going to see numerous examples next week of individuals who trusted him. Is he the object of your faith? You see, you, you'll be able to articulate or determine what your faith is in, if you ask yourself, what do I hope in? What do I hope in? Answer that question. If you can say, where is my hope? That will help you understand what your faith is. The hope of Abel, the hope of Enoch, the hope of the author of Hebrews is in the promise that was given to them by God. If your hope is to be happy all the time, oh, you are in danger of losing your faith because you won't be. 
I was talking with an elder this morning. And his son, his wife of two years, came to him and said, I don't love you anymore. I'm not happy. I'm leaving. That is so common. If I can't be happy, I therefore must leave my faith. It's dangerous. It's real. It happens all the time. You know people who have walked that route. There's a million applications. If your hope is in happiness in this life, you will not be able to endure suffering and hold on to your faith at the same time. But if your hope is in Christ, if your hope is in Christ, and the promises that he, you have in him, you will be able to endure hell itself in this life. The way that you will see the examples that the author gives us in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. So, I would encourage and exhort each one of us, including myself, to spend this next week focusing on Jesus, the author, perfecter, Hebrews chapter 12, and the object of our faith. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the object of our faith. He's the author of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. John writes in his gospel, at the end of his gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, i.e. have trust, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, i.e. trusting, you may have life in his name. Investigate the claims of the object of your faith. Investigate the works of Jesus, the object of your faith. Investigate and dig into the character of the object of your faith. And investigate the love of Christ, the object of your faith. Paul says that Christ died for the wicked. We were yet sinners when he died for us. The love of God is demonstrated in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, paraphrase, while we were faithless, while the locus of our faith and the locus of our trust was inward in our own ability to reason, while our hope was placed in our external and our internal happiness and had nothing to do with the glory of God, that's when he bore my sin. That's when he bore your sin. In the midst of our faithlessness, he was faithful and he shed his love upon us. And his love is poured into our hearts. And you and I have now been made adopted children and heirs in Christ. And yes, there are times we are faithless, but he is always faithful. And he means what he says, and he says what he means, and you will never be cast away in him because of his love. He cannot love you more. He will never love you less 
And that is his promise. And if we meditate on that, regardless of the degree and the depths of our pain, our faith will preserve our souls. And we will be richly rewarded. As we will see next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your revelation. Thank you that Jesus has come and he has revealed your personhood as he is the exact representation of your being, the essence of who you are. And Lord, we can know you through him. Father, speak to our hearts. Strengthen our faith. And Lord, help us to know you, the object of our affection and the object of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.